We're into the second part of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I suggest we take the reading there to begin with. And as you're finding your way in your copy of God's word to 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, starting from verse 13, uh, should say that this is Paul who's really rising to one of the main teaching points in his letter. And main teaching points that are uh, articulated in the letters that Paul and Peter and John uh, wrote, they were practical as well as doctrinal in that they would teach something that was important for God's people to know about because it impacted how they were to live. And this portion from 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 onwards is one of those. So it's one of Paul's main teaching points in this letter, and it's meant to give us understanding about God. So it's theology. Uh, it's a teaching about what God wants uh, for his people and how we're to live in response to that. So that's that's doctrine. And then it's up to us as to how we respond and we, we react to it. Paul's already touched on this topic and it's the topic of the return of the Lord Jesus he's already touched on it a number of times already in the letter he's mentioned it in passing but it's been a recurring theme which helps us to see that it is one of his most important teaching points let's read the portion together so first Thessalonians 4 and verse 13 to the end of the chapter Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul says at the very end of this section that it's an encouragement. Remember, of course, that uh, the letters when they're originally written were not divided up into verses or chapters. Uh, so sometimes they do make a, a little bit of a false ending or a false beginning for us. So we've come to the end of what is a chapter for us, but it flows into the next uh, so next week's study will take us into more of an understanding of what's involved in the return of the Lord Jesus. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul had written that the believers in Thessalonica, along with himself and his companions and all other believers, that they had come to believe and that they were waiting for God's Son from heaven whom he had raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
So Paul has already told the people in Thessalonica that waiting for the return of the Son of God is something to be patient about. But it is something that God is going to do for his people through Jesus, who is coming to receive them to himself. They're going to be rescued from the wrath to come. In the context of the letter, the wrath to come is not the wrath that we would understand is coming to those who continue to reject and rebel against the God who made them and who rules over everything and who re rejects Jesus Christ as the only savior from sin and its consequences. That eternal wrath of God that is experienced by those who are sent into the lake of fire that we read of at the end of Revelation. That's not the, the wrath of God to come that Paul is referring to. I think when we read the whole letter and the whole of the second letter to the Thessalonians, we see that the wrath to come is really the experience that the people on earth are going to go through in the days just prior to when the Lord Jesus returns to the earth to establish his kingdom rule and reign. We know that as the millennium is when he rules from Jerusalem over the nations of this world for a thousand years that we're told about. But up to that period, there's going to be a period that's known as the Great Tribulation. And the Lord Jesus spoke about that as warnings to the Jews in particular. And it's going to be a frightening time because it's going to be a period when God's wrath does come against the people on earth for their rejection and their rebellion against him. Now, I think in the context of the letters to the Thessalonians, Paul was addressing something that was deeply troubling for them because they were facing really severe persecution and opposition for their faith. It's possible, though we're not told, that maybe some of them even were being killed for their faith. And maybe some of them have already died because of the persecution that they were facing. This takes us back into 1 Thessalonians 1 again, verses 6 and 7, where Paul says to them in the church of God in Thessalonica, he says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, that's the word of persecution or oppression, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Remember that Paul, we read about it in Acts 17, had had to leave the city of Thessalonica after only a few months of being with them because the persecution and the opposition was so severe that his life was under threat. Now, when he left, it didn't mean that the persecution and the opposition stopped, did it? The brothers and sisters in the Church of God in Thessalonica would have had to continue to experience that opposition and persecution against themselves. But Paul was saying from what he'd heard from Timothy, who had just come back from them, that as he'd seen, they'd imitated Paul and his companions and the Lord Jesus himself, who'd also suffered the most serious of persecutions and opposition and oppression. They'd been prepared to 
receive the gospel, even in the face of that. And their continuing in that was an example to the believers in the whole region that they were part of and even beyond it. So that's the way in which they were imitators and examples. They were models to others of receiving the gospel and living it out absolutely convicted by its truthfulness, even in the face of the most severe of persecution. So the situation that they're currently in was really serious. And maybe <clears throat> it's quite possible that Timothy has come back with a message to Paul from them. And they're saying, the situation is so severe and is so difficult. Are we already in these last days when the great judgment of God is coming on the nations? Have we missed something? Have we missed the return of the Lord Jesus that you would have taught us about, Paul? when you told us that Jesus would rescue us from this coming wrath, have we missed it? What about those who've died? Have, are they going to miss out on the return of the Lord Jesus and everything that is to follow? So I think the time that they had had originally with the Church of God in Thessalonica was so limited that Paul and his companions probably had not had the time to go into the teaching about the Lord's return in all of its detail to give them confidence and hope. You know, 2 Thessalonians, when we move into that in the Lord's will, we'll see that that letter focuses in on what's known as the day of the Lord that we're introduced to in 1 Thessalonians 5. And the day of the Lord really refers to the period of time when just before the Lord returns to the earth to establish his reign, that the judgments of God come on the peoples on the earth in their rebellion and sin. That's the wrath to come. And Second Thessalonians really addresses that and reminds them of that. So I think Paul's letters is an attempt to tell them that while things are really difficult and you're facing persecution and oppression, it's nowhere nearly as bad as what this, face, this world is gonna face prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus to establish his reign on the earth when he rules from Jerusalem. What Paul is taking us to and what he took the Thessalonians to in his letter is the joy that believers in the Lord Jesus have to look forward to associated with the Lord's return. Now I've said a lot about the Lord's return to earth and how there's gonna be fearful experiences that the nations are gonna go through before that. But what we're told about here in the first letter to the Thessalonians and particularly outlined for us in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that God has not destined us for wrath, but rather to be rescued from that experience through Jesus Christ, who is returning to gather his believers to himself when he returns to the air. The Lord is returning he is coming back, and in a sense, it is one return, but it's in two phases, is how we understand it. The first, he comes to the air to call all those who have believed in him, dead and alive, to himself. That's what we've read. And afterwards, after a period of at least seven years, during which there will be this great tribulation, when the believers have been taken from this earth, those that are left will go through horrific times. Then the Lord will come back 
to the earth, the second phase of his return. And he, as the son of man, will stand on this earth and he will defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom. So it's one return of the Lord in two phases with a gap in between the two phases of at least seven years. Now, we don't have the detail to get into all of this. But what Paul is encouraging the people here in is that the return of the Lord is something for them to look forward to with joy and rejoicing. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19, he said, Who is our hope and joy and crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, Thessalonians, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? So he knew that when the Lord was going to return, there was going to be joy and rejoicing for Paul and his companions and also for the believers, those that formed the church of God in Thessalonica, as they together in the presence of the Lord would enjoy his company. You know, the word there for coming that's in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19 is an important word, the Greek word parousia. And in the language of the day, as it would have been used in the Greek of the day, it was used as an official term to speak of the visit of a person of high rank, especially kings and emperors, when they would grace a city or a province with their own presence. They would come and inspect and visit the regions that were under their control, parousia. That's the word that was used in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19. His coming is, and that word in Greek would immediately have twigged with them what he was referring to, the arrival of a great dignitary. And it was something to look forward to. In Matthew 24, verse 3, when the Lord Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, the disciples, it says, came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? These things were all the things about what's going to come in the future and the judgments of God. And what will be the sign of your parousia and of the end of the age? The disciples asked of the Lord. They recognized him to be the dignitary. And they recognized there was going to be a time when he was going to appear in a way outside his, his city. And people were going to rejoice at his coming. At that time in Matthew 24, the disciples hadn't got it all together in their thinking. I just want to point out that word coming and parousia and contrast that with it. If you're making any notes on this in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 1, it says, therefore, you yourselves, brethren, know that our coming to you was not in vain. The word coming there for Paul's coming to the people in Thessalonica, it's not the same word. That word simply means our, our coming and our entrance to you. It's an entirely different word. So he didn't use the word parousia to describe his coming to Thessalonia, Thessalonica. He used it for the Lord, his coming that is promised. In 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 13, just reviewing those references in the letter already to the Lord's return. He tells us not only that it's a rescue from the wrath to come and that there's going to be great joy and rejoicing in it. Chapter one and chapter two, but chapter three as well. He says that all disciples of the Lord Jesus, all believers are going to be part of it. First Thessalonians three, verse 13. He writes to them and says that you're that 
he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming, parousia, of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The promise that the Lord was coming and somehow he was coming with all his saints. Now, when we look at saints in the New Testament usage, it speaks of all those who have been made holy by God through faith in Jesus, the Savior. So they're all going to be part of his coming. So how is this all going to work out? The specific teaching then that we get to in 1 Thessalonians 4, that Paul gives to Thessalonica and he gives to us, and we thank God for it, helps us to understand what is coming. The Lord is coming. The disciples in Thessalonica were wondering if they'd missed something, this great return that they'd heard of. And they were going through this period of really difficult persecution. People were being killed, possibly, for their faith. Had they missed something? What about those who died? Had they misunderstood what Paul had told them? So Paul comes back, and we've read in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. So you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. The word therefore uninformed uh, means uninformed. It's not misinformed, but it, it sort of indicates, I think, that Paul maybe hasn't got round to the opportunity in his teaching time with them in Thessalonica to really give them all of the information that they, they would now receive in what he was writing in the coming verses. They were uninformed, but now they're being informed, and we are too. He mentions that those who are asleep, and asleep is a euphemism for being dead. It occurs three times in this section, verse 13, 14, and 15. And it should be equated with the phrase in verse 16, which is dead in Christ. So when you see asleep, the logic of the flow of, the, of Paul's writing concludes with dead in Christ in verse 16. So the asleep ones are dead in Christ. I want to say something about this being asleep. It's asleep for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus. It's not soul sleep that some people speak of, and it's not some form of suspended animation. It's That's against what the Bible would teach us. The Bible teaches us that when we die, and it is appointed for, for all men to die once, and after that comes judgment, but once we die, the Bible teaches that from that moment, there is the active consciousness of the spirit of the one who has departed after the moment of death. And the scriptures would show us that in our current time now, for us, for those that we've loved, who have passed on, who have been in Christ, we can lay hold of the scriptures that tell us that they are at home with the Lord. They're in his presence. Their spirit is there. For those who have not, the scriptures would show us that they have an awareness, a consciousness now already of the wrath of God that they will face for eternity. Do you remember on the cross, the Lord Jesus turned to one of the two men that was crucified with him, the one who said, will you remember me when you come in your kingdom? Jesus says, truly, I say to you today. You will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, verse 43. Promise of the Lord Jesus. 
that when that man died, there would be the awareness of paradise for him because he had ex exercised his trust in who Jesus was and why Jesus was dying. You go back in Luke and Jesus uh, tells the parable or the story about the rich man and Lazarus. And it says of the rich man in verse 23 of Luke 16, that in Hades, that's in death, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. It was a description of the torment of the one who had rejected God's things, the rich man, and Lazarus who had trusted God. And one was in torment, and one was in the place of rest. Paul wrote about it elsewhere, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23. He said, I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very far better. For him, he wanted to be with Christ. That conscious awareness in the moment after death of being with the Lord. And he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. And he says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So at the moment of death, the believer goes to be at home with the Lord. Now, the body, to all intents and purposes, as, as others would look on, it looks as if it's asleep. Do you remember how the Lord described Jairus's daughter and how he referred to the other Lazarus of the family that he loved? He described them both as being asleep and he would raise them from the dead to others. And to him, it looked as if they were asleep. They were dead, but Jesus raised them. Now, Jesus was the one who came that the dead might have life. And that's why Paul says in this opening verse in this section that we're not to grieve as those who have no hope. The rest of mankind who are not trusting in the gospel that Paul had preached about the Lord Jesus who gives life to those who are spiritually dead and will give life to those who die physically. We're not to grieve like them who have no hope. It's not a wishful thinking type of situation when someone dies, but it's a confident expectation that what God has said is true. Notice something important here. It doesn't say that Christians are not to grieve. Grieving is a reality because death is an horrific thing. It is contrary to what God intended for humanity. So therefore, death is something to be hated. And God hates it. But yet God has defeated it and has promised to be at home with the Lord for those who pass on. Who die before the Lord's return to the air. And he has promised the resurrection of their bodies into glorified bodies in the future, too. And it's for that reason that we don't grieve like those who don't have this hope. Verse 14 is the clincher for us as those who say that we believe in the gospel. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Paul said, then we have to believe. That with Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, God is also going to bring with him all those who are secure in Christ Jesus. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus are secure in God's purposes and they will not miss out on the glories 
that God has promised. Verse 15. Notice Paul's confidence here. He says this was by the word of the Lord that he said this. He wasn't just making this up. He was saying this was something that was revealed to him. Something that he had heard from the Lord. And the other apostles would have heard it from the Lord as well. An entirely trustworthy source for this teaching that the Lord was returning. And what was it? That those who have already died, they are asleep as they would appear to us. But when the Lord returns to the air, their bodies are going to be raised. And their bodies are going to be raised to join with their spirit again. And they're going to precede those who are alive. If you pay for it, you know you can get priority boarding on uh, airlines. We used to before the pandemic. In a sense, it's like that. Those who die in Christ Jesus, secure in his salvation, prior to his return to the air, they're not going to miss out. In fact, they're going to see him first, momentarily first, before those who are alive, Paul tells us, are caught up with them in the clouds to meet him in the air. He's coming. The great king is parousia. He is coming. The dignitary is coming. Because verse 16 tells us the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. What a privilege. For those who might have lost their lives in Thessalonica for their faith, those who were still alive were now being told. They're going to experience something wonderful. And it's going to be momentarily before you would experience it, the presence of the Lord himself, whose call, when he makes his call, there's no resisting it. Do you remember he called to Lazarus? Lazarus, come out. Jesus is going to call and there's going to be no stopping all those who have put their faith in him. Just as in the call to salvation, there's no resisting that. When God calls us to himself, it's irresistible. When Jesus returns to the air and he calls for his own, it's irresistible. Nothing, no power of evil, no power can prevent the gathering of all of his to himself. But You know, in between the call to salvation and the call to glory, the Lord calls us to various things in our lives of service. We can resist him in those. That's a topic for another time. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain so that some believers are going to be alive when the Lord returns. They will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. The word caught up there means to be snatched and to be seized. It's that unstoppable power of God to bring his own to himself, whether they're dead or alive, bodily we will all appear with the Lord in the air. The focus is on being snatched to be gathered to him. It's like taking hold of something that you really want and taking it to yourself. Somebody offers you the most delightful plate of food, for example, and it's offered to you. What do you do? You reach out and you take it to yourself. Same thing, the Lord taking that which he longs for himself. Now, the word that's often used to describe this Lord coming to the air and taking his people to himself is is known as the rapture. That comes from from Latin, really. 
and it means to carry off. So that's how that's come into our, our way of speaking about this. But the important thing is here that we're to meet the Lord. Here again, the word that's used here, apantasis, was very important in Greco-Roman culture, just like parousia was. So apantasis is. In Greco-Roman culture, it meant that when the dignitary was coming, that people would go outside of the city to arrive, to meet the arrival of that dignitary and then escort them into the city. In a sense today, and we're not wanting to lessen this in any way, but when a football team wins a big prize, the supporters line the streets as the bus comes through with the team and they follow the, the victorious team to the stadium or wherever the celebration is going to be. I might bring it up to date for us. It's the same sort of thing. We've got this situation where the Lord returns and he's going to continue to come to the earth after this return to the air, after the period of at least seven years. But he's already been met by those who are his, who share in his victory. And then they're going to accompany him when he takes up his rule and reign on the earth. Notice we're told that we meet the Lord in the air. You know, that's the realm that Jesus has all authority over. He has all authority over every realm. We're told in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and against the rulers, the world forces of this darkness that are in the heavenly places. When Jesus comes to the air, he's going to show that he's defeated them all. And we're going to be part of his victory when he returns to bring us to himself. And then we finish with, and so shall we always be with the Lord. What a joy to look forward to. The Lord hasn't told us when he's returning. For the Thessalonians, it seemed as though it was something that they may have missed or something that they thought was going to be imminent. For us, we're still waiting. Peter tells us to be patient while we're waiting. But when we come, we're going to be with the Lord in the air and be with him forever and all of the purposes that will be worked out after that. We'll get into what happens after that, I think, as we move into the second letter, maybe even into chapter five. Verse 18, how does this all affect our living? This is doctrine, this is theology, but how does it affect our living? Therefore, comfort or encourage one another with these words. In the face of whatever it is we might be going through, the return of the Lord is guaranteed. We don't know when. And if we die, we will be with him. If we are alive when he returns, we will be with him and forever. How is that not an encouragement for us then to live as we should? Peter's the one who picks up on that in one of his letters. And he says, what sort of people ought we to be knowing that the Lord is returning? That's for you and me to work out in light of what we've just considered together and our work through of these verses in 1 Thessalonians 4. I leave that for you to contemplate yourselves. Thanks for listening.